Welcome to you all. Delighted that you could uh, join us tonight. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about the reign of God tonight. And as I was uh, preparing for this evening and thinking and praying my way through uh, some of the concepts I want to raise with you, uh, it struck me that uh, Jesus never talked about God. He never talked about God as God. He always talked about relationship with God. And it made me remember uh, one of the great philosophers of the last century, a Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber. You may remember him from I Thou. Uh, He was an existential philosopher and a Hasidic Jewish scholar, a sociologist and an anthropologist. Uh, He was an extraordinary thinker. And Buber used to say that, don't ever talk to me about God. Uh, I can't talk to you about God. I can only talk to you about relationship with God. Uh, Buber also was uh, just a real quick little anecdote. He died uh, in 1965, June actually, in 1965, of a rather old age. And earlier in that same year, he had been in New York at Columbia University, and the uh, Archdiocese of New York got Dr. Buber to talk to all the priests of the Archdiocese. And here's this great Jewish Hasidic scholar in front of 900 or 1,000 Catholic priests. And he said to them, my brothers, he said, what's the difference between you Christians and us Jews? He said, you Christians believe that the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus and you wait for him to come again. He said, we Jews believe the Messiah has not yet come, and we wait his coming. He said, and when the Messiah comes, if you're close enough to the Messiah, you could ask him if you want to. Have you been here before? (laughs) He said, "If if I'm close enough to the Messiah, I'll whisper in his ear, for heaven's sake, don't answer that question. <laughs> it was a wonderful way to reverence both traditions here. Reign of God, the Greek is basileia tutheiu, the kingdom of God, if you will. But the reign of God, that phrase really defines Jesus. You know, it, it, it appears... Uh, in the Gospels, 120 times. The word church appears twice. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Church was not a word Jesus used. Reign of God absolutely was. He devoted his whole life to the reign of God, all his energy, all his passion, and it's the key to understanding Jesus and his mission. The reign of God. He wasn't preaching about a religious doctrine. He was preaching an event, uh, an experience. In the end, he was preaching a relationship with God and God's relationship with any individual who came before the reign of God. It's a belonging, it's an experience. It meant a passion for a fuller life for everybody. Three things seem to characterize the reign of God for Jesus. Justice, mercy, and joy. Justice, mercy, and joy. He never said what the reign of God was, but he talked about it all the time and pointed to it. All of his teaching is in service of helping people get a sense of the experience of the reign of God and the experience of a relationship. You know, all through the Hebrew scriptures, it's really clear there are lots of titles that the Jews gave to God. They, they always thought of God as the king of Israel. Uh, It was their thought that they were a theocracy, that God was the king. 
They always thought of God as their shepherd, their pastor, their protector. Um, They knew that they were special to God. Uh, But these long periods of oppression, you know, they they were conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans. It's just like over a period of several hundred years, it's just one oppressive regime after the next that had commandeered their land and commandeered their right to govern. And after all of this, their oppression was so strong, their hope was evaporated. Where is their God? Where is their protector? And whom will God raise up to lead them uh, away from this oppression? Jesus comes at it a whole different way. Uh, For Jesus, transformation takes place in each individual heart, not in the structures. Did you notice that? Jesus wasn't about changing the structures of his own religion. He was about helping people experience a transformation of heart, one person to the next person to the next. And even in the midst of the crushing poverty, which we talked about last evening, that the Galileans and the Judeans experienced outside the city, and the heavy oppression they could experience God's saving presence. And Jesus told them, shockingly, God's reign has arrived. God's reign has arrived. Father Pagola, in his research, suggests that it's been wrongly understood and translated. Uh, It's only in John's Gospel in which uh, the, the statement is made, that the kingdom of God is within you. It's really around you. The kingdom of God is around you. It's not an individual event. It's an event that all those who are of open heart and converted to uh, having God's influence in their lives can experience. God's reign, God's, God's rule is a liberating force of freedom, which is an ironic thing for them to hear. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Trust in God, trust in me. The truth will set you free. There was never a people more in bondage than the the Jews were at the time of Jesus with the oppressive Roman uh, footprint all over their backs. But, But God was presented. The reign of God is a liberating force that sets people free to do love and to do justice. And as Jesus taught it, it began in each person's heart. Every time a burden is lifted from someone's shoulders, every time evil is overcome, the reign of God happens. The reign of God is taking place. Um, The kingdom of God is a way of life. It's a a profound and joyful and life-changing event coming under the influence of the reign of God. And it begins with accepting Jesus and accepting his proclamation. John reduces the whole of the task to accepting that Jesus is the one sent from the living God. The whole message of the reign of God is that God cares about them and that God cares about liberating people from whatever dehumanizes them, whatever causes them suffering. God wants them to live in dignity, and Jesus communicated that compassion of God. For Jesus, the prime characteristic of God seems to be compassion. And that's one of the reasons that he identified with the sick and the lepers and the despised, uh, the marginalized, those who had no purchase whatsoever in the society. And Jesus' healings and exorcisms that took place among those uh, folks was really a sign, a living sign of God's compassion and God's kingdom having come. Also, you know, the expulsion of the demons 
was a sign of Jesus overcoming Satan, if you will, or the power of evil, more precisely, that, which is only done through the power of God. As we said last night, God is a friend of life. And what mattered most to Jesus were the Galilean peasants in their, in their life was their life, not their religion. It was their life. He healed them, he dispelled their suffering, and he restored their life. As he said, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. What he rebelled against was the pathological religious attitudes that he encountered with the Pharisees and the scribes and the publicans, and specifically legalism, rigorism, and the meaningless cult of righteousness. Let me say a word about that. By the way, you know, if you listen carefully to what Pope Francis is saying, he's saying very similar things here in terms of our own Catholic experience. He's, he's constantly decrying clericalism, uh, which deserves decrying in every possible way. Any notion that there's some kind of specialness to clergy, that somehow um, we're a little closer to the royal mint jelly, uh, is to be despised, that there is no specialness among God's people, that all of us, equally and without reservation, uh, are made in God's imaging partnership. And that was what Jesus experienced in his own religion, was that legalism, rigorism, and also the cult of righteousness. You know, let me just give you a contemporary example. I teach in a major seminary, which is pretty full. And there's, there's a, a sizable differentiation between some very conservative folks who are there and some folks who are more liberal theologically who are there. I'll let you guess which camp I'm in, right? <laughs> well, there is a, there is a, uh, you know, a tension that's there. Uh, I've said on a number of occasions and doing faculty in-services and other times and with the seminarians, you know, we need, we need to be conservative. You know, we need to, to reverence what's been handed on to us. We don't invent uh, discipleship in Jesus. We are, we are part of a long tradition here. Now, we're not congregationalists. Uh, at the same time, we will always have to be liberal. We will always have to adapt the gospel to the age in which we find ourselves. And we'll always have to um, respond to uh, scientific learning and uh, that which can uh, advance our understanding of God's great world. We need them both. The enemy is not conservatism or liberalism. The entity, enemy is rigidity. Rigidity is a pathology. You know, an inability to think differently, an inability to hear a voice contrary to the voice you speak. That's what Jesus ran up against, that rigorism, that unless you interpreted the law the way the Pharisees of El Shammai did, they had no time for you. Likewise, that um, judgmental legalism by which people were dismissed if they didn't follow the law, in a certain way. But perhaps the most insidious thing that Jesus' proclamation of the reign of God challenged was the cult of righteousness. The one group that Jesus never laid a glove on in all of his ministry were those who were righteous because of the law. I follow the law. I keep the law. Uh, therefore, I have achieved righteousness. And Jesus' teaching was always righteousness comes from God. Anyone who claims to be a source of his or her own righteousness is an idolater. Does that make sense? 
The, the kingdom of God was up against that, and the reign of God that Jesus announced uh, decried legalism, rigorism, and the cult of righteousness. What the kingdom of God called for was absolute trust in the mercy of God, a profound belief in the mercy of God. Over and over, Jesus manifested that the kingdom of God leaves no one out. Anyone who is open to it is welcome. It's emphatically for the poor. Jesus said, blessed are you poor, uh, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, which was a good measure of the population of Galilee, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who mourn now, for you will be comforted and you will laugh. And notice that Jesus called them blessed even in the midst of their suffering, even in the midst of it. And in fact, in a very special way, Jesus saw the poor as privileged. Who else in whom can they trust? Just a real quick anecdote. A few summers ago, I was teaching a, a course in summer school for Seton Hall University, and it took place on the Jersey Shore. And they gave a, they gave a, a, a full summer scholarship to two priests from Haiti. Haiti's unemployment, by the way, is 40.1%. The, of the 60% who are lucky to work, their wage is no more than $2 a day. So they're making 700 and something a year. I mean, the poverty is just, the poverty is like the poverty in, in the Galilee of Jesus' time. Well, these two priests took different courses. I mean, they took courses from different professors, but they had a deal with each other that they would milk each professor dry. They would get as much as they could. And they also would ask the professors whenever they mentioned, we mentioned a book in class, do you have an extra copy on your shelf? <laughs> and could you send it to me? You know, they didn't have any resources whatsoever. Well, the one that was in my class was a man named Father Wismick. And we had a one-hour walk every day after lunch. It was in stone. And we would review what happened that morning. And if he had any questions, you know, he'd take his little notes with him. Poor as a church mouse. And this place where we were working at the Jersey Shore had all kinds of very wealthy homes, which were summer homes for folks in Westchester County. They looked like small hotels to me. Anyway, we're walking through the neighborhood every day. Finally, you know, I said, Wismick, by the way, I said, you know, all these gated communities are to keep guys like us out. You know that, don't you? you know? And he says, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I stopped. There's a Jag and a few, you know, lovely, lovely uh, cars in the driveway. And I said to him, Wismick, may I ask you, please, can I ask you what happens inside you on our walks when you see all this, uh, this wealth? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He was a consummate gentleman. And he said, Ray, he said, I feel very sorry for them. There was no acrimony in his voice whatsoever. He said, I feel very sorry for them. He said, they have so much to distract them. What he was telling me was that he felt like a wealthy man because all he had was his Jesus. His trust was absolutely on God. That's, that's the way I think Jesus identified with the poor. You know, it wasn't any condescending kind of notion whatsoever. He really believed they were blessed. Blessed are you poor. The kingdom of God belongs to you. I have, a, I have a priest friend that whenever we happen to be in a circumstance where we're praying, he always prays for those who have no one to pray for them, no one to love them except God alone. And I've always loved that notion, you know, to pray for folks who have no one to love them except God alone. Uh, and Jesus, Jesus was that way with the poor. But he also called for radical change. Things have to change. Things have to change. And Jesus called for change that no rabbi before him had ever called for. Jesus did four things that had never been done before. Things have to change. He, he taught the law wouldn't save you. Unbelievable for a rabbi. The belief in him is what brings salvation. Secondly, 
he told people they had to have a personal relationship with him. They had to pray. Thirdly, Jesus required an inclusivity that nobody before him had done. He was inclusive even of Roman soldiers. He was inclusive of women. We'll much more about that later this evening. He w- there was no one excluded. Boy, that was not done in Judaism before Jesus. And fourthly, profoundly, Jesus challenged the lex talionis, which the Jews were very proud of. The Egyptians had also developed the same thing in the Code of Hammurabi. But the lex talionis was the advance of morality to that uh, uh, of some kind of uh, parody here. If you, if you hurt me, I don't get to kill you. I get to hurt you back. Eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth. That was far more advanced than murder. Uh, what Jesus said was, he went way beyond that. That has to stop. He called for love your enemies. No one had taught that before Jesus of Nazareth. Forgive those who persecute you. Pray for those who do ill to you. Never done before. Jesus called for a a transformation from the core of a person that would profoundly change them. Just a word or two. We said a couple things last night, but just a word or two about the parables. Uh, Jesus, he says it. He even says it in the text, uh, you know, the, the redaction that we've gotten. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? How shall I describe it for you? He's reaching for words. He's reaching for metaphors. You know, he's, he's, uh, uh, he's at a loss that he can't quite capture it. You've had that experience, haven't you? You know, describing how much you love your grandchild or, you know, like how uh, something that really profoundly touched you. I was thinking as I pulled out of the parking lot this evening, boy, how would I ever describe one of these Arizona sunsets to folks that live in Oregon who see four sunsets a year? (laughs) It's like, my God, how beautiful that is. I have no words for that. And Jesus couldn't describe the kingdom that way. And his parables were meant to do that. Um, And he, he created images And he constructed beautiful metaphors for the kingdom of God. He was a master storyteller. Uh, All of Galilee is present in his language. In the language that he chose, uh, it's it's work days and feast days, it's sky, it's seasons were all in his metaphors. It's flocks showed up. It's vineyards became part of the metaphor. Their planting and their harvesting cycles were in Jesus' metaphors. They're beautiful lake. They're fishermen and they're farmers. They could meet God right there in the daily. That's the way Jesus described the reign of God. It's right there in the daily. It's right there in the rhythm of your life. It's right before you. The rabbis saw things from a legal perspective. Jesus saw things from the transforming reign of God. Um, The parables, you know, and this is, this is an occupational hazard for a preacher. Any of the deacons or priests can tell you this. That, you know, it's a real challenge with the parables of Jesus because the task isn't to, to explain the parables in clearer language than Jesus used. How arrogant is that? The task is to try to awaken the experience that the parables that Jesus told gave the people. We mentioned last night the shocking parable of the man who had two sons. People would have been talking about that all the way home and deep into the evening because it was so foreign to anything they could even imagine. And yet Jesus used that starkly horroring, horrifying story to describe the compassion of the Father. My goodness. Uh, the seeds that he, that he talked about, uh, that's the way the reign of God works. Who knows how those seeds work? Uh, this time of year, as I drive to the seminary where I teach, it's an 18-mile drive for me, and it's through the beautiful uh, farms of the Willamette Valley in Oregon uh, to get to the monastery where the seminary is. And I'm passing these 
gorgeous farms. And at this time of year, uh, the fields have already been plowed and the farmers are planting their seeds. And as the semester goes on and the shoots come up and the greenness emerges um, and the crops take their own, their own uh, vestige, it's so beautiful. And I'm always in awe of the wisdom of these farmers who know the rhythms of the seeds and know how the water and the sun and the soil and the chemistry all bring that about. And the vineyards, the beautiful vineyards that take place. It's, it's gorgeous. Jesus uses exactly those same metaphors to describe the kingdom of God, that the, the miracle that takes place every time a seed grows and a crop comes forward. You don't see it happening, and yet, boom, there it is. Um, likewise, too, he used some, some examples that were really profound examples out of very simple daily living things. Um, the bread dough, the mustard seed, and, and the message was the kingdom of God is already at work among you. It's already taking place. Take a look around. Be part of it. Give yourself over to it. Uh, everybody had been expecting some huge cataclysmic event by which a great warrior leader, Messiah, would come up and free the people. Jesus was saying it's like a seed. It's like a seed growing in the ground. And one of the metaphors that he used would have caused uproarious laughter among the folks. You remember the, the, the little visual parable uh, that Jesus gives? James Breach has a wonderful book called The Silence of Jesus. It's all on the parables. And he talks about photodramatic parables, which are pictures, a coin, uh, the pearl of great price. You have an image, you have a picture. And the phonodramatic parables, which are the stories that Jesus told. Well, in one of those photodramatic parables, Jesus describes like this. The reign of God is like the yeast a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, that would have just floored the, the community hearing that because three measures of flour would make enough bread to feed 150 people. There's nobody wealthy enough in the Galilean countryside who could even begin to think to do that. Who would make the bread for 150 people? Uh, and, and not only that, yeast in the Jewish tradition was a symbol of evil. It was a symbol of evil, and nothing fermented could be offered to God, thus the unleavened bread. So the whole notion that Jesus is saying that the reign of God is like this massive amount of bread with the yeast in it was pretty amazing because the upshot of that is, of course, in Jesus' metaphor, the reign of God's going to include, get ready for it, lepers, demon-possessed people, sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, uh, foreigners. Get ready for it. Because the kingdom of God is astounding. Beautiful, beautiful metaphors. The buried treasure. Remember all those conquering countries I mentioned to you that had conquered Israel? Well, all of them left artifacts. And uh, the peasants in Galilee wouldn't be thinking in terms of like, gosh, I hope I win the lottery. But all of them, all of them would have heard stories about someone scratching in the earth you know, to try to eke out some crop and coming across some gold coins some Roman soldier left there or some, uh, something from Alexander the Great's uh, visit or whatever else that they all hoped they would find something in the field. So when Jesus said, someone who finds a treasure in the field goes and sells all that he has to buy that field or, or the pearl of great price, you can't pass it up. I mean, this is, this is a life changer. Those were images Jesus used for the reign of God. And what he was saying was, the reign of God is so valuable. You can't not, not embrace it. Powerful, powerful business. Maybe among the most powerful in one way is that little, little almost uh, parenthetical uh, 
example that Jesus gave. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Do you remember that? Two men went up to the temple to pray. The short end of that story is one did and one didn't. But the two men that went up to the temple to pray, one was a Pharisee. And the Pharisee said, I thank you, God, for not making me like this tax collector. I, I fast, I tithe, I give to the poor, you know, I, I observe the law. Comes to pray to God uh, by congratulating himself. The tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you were um, acting the way the Pharisee did, you would be coming to God through a religion that has no place for a tax collector. If you come to God the way the tax collector did, then you're in a religion that has room for everybody. These were powerful and up against the pharisaical teachings, insidious teachings that Jesus was giving the people. The Good Samaritan, that blows the rest of the reservation right out of the tub. The story of the Good Samaritan just (laughs) brings down all models, all classifications of friends and enemies and chosen people and impure foreigners. Uh, For Jesus, the best measure is compassion, And in that story, it's all about compassion. The reign of God gives you a feel. It's a feel for the reign of God rather than a a geographical place or an identity. And the best ticket into the reign of God is mercy. When you're about the business of forgiving, you're about the business of God's reign. When you're lifting burdens, you're about God's reign. God is a champion of the last. You know that great reversal that the gospel talks about? That the last will be first, and the first will be last? God is a champion of the last. In God's reign proclaimed by Jesus, no one should be humiliated, no one should be excluded, no one should be separated from the community. All of those things happened in the religion in which Jesus lived. Humiliation took place on a regular basis. People were excluded on a regular basis. All who were sick, all who were demon-possessed, couldn't even come into the villages and separated from the community, not for Jesus. Jesus touches the leper, and the leper's made clean, and you'll notice Jesus is not made impure. Jesus' compassion for sinners in many ways, is his most provocative trait. In Luke's gospel, one of the charges made against Jesus was, this man welcomes sinners. He even eats with them. I always like to say, he still does. He still does. Every time we gather at the Eucharist. But what's so great about Jesus with that is, Grace comes before judgment for Jesus. The forgiveness Jesus offers is unconditional. And he's a friend of sinners before their conversion. It's it's unheard of. Never on earth has there been a more hope-filled, gratuitous, or absolute sign of the reign of God than the forgiveness Jesus tendered. The forgiveness that Jesus tendered. Jesus was a friend of women. You know, we alluded a bit to it last night, but in Jewish life, woman wasn't a good thing to be. We mentioned last night they were always a possession of a man, father, husband, brother. They were not required to learn the Torah. In fact, the scribes would never accept a female as a disciple, only men. Women were not required to say the Shema. Remember we mentioned that last night, the most beautiful uh, statement in all of Scripture, 
Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. The, the, the Jewish men pray on sunrise and sunset. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. I, I am your Lord. You shall love your Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your being, all your strength. Women weren't required to say that. They were not required to make the pilgrimages <clears throat> to the holy city. They were not permitted outside their home without a man or without the permission of a man, and then they had to veil their faces. They were profoundly marginalized in Jewish society. It wasn't that way with Jesus. In fact, Jesus' inclusivity of women is unparalleled in Judaism. It's amazing what he did with women. There were a number of women that we know of that were around Jesus and were part of his group of disciples. Mary of Magdala, more about her in a moment. Mary and Martha of Bethany, sisters of Lazarus. The woman with the hemorrhage, the Syrophoenician woman, the despised prostitutes who were part of his band, Salome, other faithful women, Joanna, my goodness, Joanna, that, that's a hugely curious thing. Joanna was married to Chusa, who was a head, uh, head of the household of Herod Antipas. What's she doing hanging around with Jesus? How'd that, and how'd that go over at the palace? Um, Susanna, Joanna, Susanna, and Mary of Magdala uh, used their finances to support Jesus and the disciples. These, these were, they were part of the band that followed him. The last in the patriarchal world are the first to enter the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's in Matthew 21. Women had to be attracted to the presence of Jesus because they felt free to listen to him. They were welcome. They were not sent away. They were part of his discipleship. For Jesus, a woman's dignity, like the dignity of a man, stems from her ability to enter into the reign of God. Do you remember that one time in the Galilean ministry in which someone from the crowd gave a common, um, a common blessing, just, just called it out? It was a blessing to the mother of Jesus. He said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. And it sounds a bit harsh, you know, if you're not familiar with what's, what was up. Because Jesus says, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and act on it, which certainly included his mother. But you see, in that, in that society, as we mentioned last night, a woman was valued for two key things, her fecundity and her work. And the mother of Jesus was being praised for her fecundity. And Jesus corrected that. It's those who hear the word of God and act on it. That included the women in the crowd who were in front of him. His sensitivity is almost unknown in a patriarchal society. Amazing. Jesus not only talks to women, he talks of women. Many of the metaphors that he uses for the kingdom of God involve women sewing patches on cloth, sweeping a house, Jesus makes visible and highlights their activities, that what the women were doing become an image, uh, becomes an image for the, for the kingdom of God. That reverences their work. That reverences their life. The woman sweeping the house for the coin is a great metaphor for God's love for the lost and for the last. Jesus takes every opportunity 
to present women as a model of faith, a model of generosity, a model of selfless commitment. You remember the poor widow who in the temple went up and put into the treasury everything she had to live on. Jesus pointed out to his disciples the generosity of that woman, that chronically ill woman with the menstrual hemorrhage. When she broke the law and touched Jesus, Jesus blesses her for her faith. Your faith has made you whole, holds her up. The one breaking the law is held up as a model of faith. The despairing pagan woman, remember that the pagan who's, who, who changes Jesus' mind, Syrophoenician woman, badgers him to heal her daughter. And she's the only example in the scriptures of someone changing Jesus' mind. And, and, and it seems to me that what changed his mind is that when he listened to her, his understanding of what God had in mind for the kingdom is exactly what she had in mind lifting burdens, healing the sick. He wants them to live in dignity. And we mentioned last night, too, the safety of marriage. Because Deuteronomy 2024 gave a man the authority to just write a bill of divorce and divorce his wife. In fact, there were some rabbis who interpreted that way beyond adultery as a cause for if they found another woman more attractive they could write a bill of divorce. The reason Jesus challenges that is for the safety of women. To accept the reign of God means making space for life together without male domination. Women in many ways, when you think about it, from what we know, now who knows what went on on the trail, Women, in many ways, were the true disciples. We don't have any evidence of their arguing among each other who was the greatest, who was the best. They got it. They were used to being the last. They were used to being anonymous, if you will. What's really wonderful uh, looking at that, that background is that in the early church, uh, immediately, women were welcome to the Eucharist. You know, that was, that, was, that was a pretty seismic change from the way Judaism had gone about it. They were welcome to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and in many cases, it was in their house that it was held, in the, in the, uh, the church houses. And who's going to contest that some women didn't preside at the Eucharist in those church houses? Well, there goes the papacy, huh? <laughs> I, had a, I had a dear friend. We did a lot of workshops together. He was a bishop up in uh, Saginaw, Michigan. He's gone to God. Young, he went to God. Great. His name was Bishop Ken Huntner. He's a really funny guy, great theologian, uh, but really, really liberal. And he was the bishop of Saginaw, Michigan. And everybody knew he was going to die, the bishop of Saginaw, Michigan. Uh, we were presenting in a workshop up in Seattle, and the archbishop at the time was a man named Archbishop Murphy, and he said to the, to the priest, he said, I love to sit next to Bishop Untner during the bishops' meetings because they're so boring, and Ken's, dri- uh, 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 what do you call him? Doodling. Uh, the notes he writes to himself are so interesting. It's more fun sitting next to Bishop Untner. And when Untner got up to the microphone, he said, Murphy, you're sitting next to me cost me Philadelphia. <laughs> As if, right? That whole, that whole wonderful sense of um, how Jesus went about proclaiming uh, God. Women were at the heart of it. Boy, take, take a good read of the Acts of the Apostles. I think it's in 16, maybe, chapter 16. I should have looked it up. Uh, Paul lists a whole long list, 16 or 18 names of women uh, that uh, he singles out and, and calls apostles 
you know that these are these are treated as equals to him and they they were they are from the some of them he says that were in the gospel uh, before I was you know that they were working in the in the gospel before I was it's, it's wonderful to see how the disciples of Jesus seem to get it in how he described the reign of God and the role of women the role of women is no different from the role of men disciples in the reign of God Mary of Magdala Mary of Magdala. Magdala is a little town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, fishing village. Um, and we don't know this for sure, but by inference, uh, she was a woman of some means. We know that because she helped pick up the check for three years of uh, traveling with Jesus and the disciples. Uh, one of the great ironies in the Jewish law is that although a woman was a possession, she could inherit and what she inherited did not, she belonged to her husband, but her inheritance didn't. She could do whatever she wanted with her inheritance. Interesting aberration in the law. Mary of Magdala most likely belonged to a, a family that had a fishing fleet because she was uh, among the moneyed folks. She had, she had resources. Uh, she, we also know her as a cherished friend of Jesus. Um, she also, I'm sure you know this by now, uh, there were, gosh, reaching all the way back to the 6th century, she got confabulated with the, the woman from the streets that came in uh, when Jesus was dining with Simon the Pharisee. This was a prostitute, and Simon thinks he has the answer to his question, could Jesus be the Messiah, without ever asking a question, because if he were the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. You remember that? Well, in Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 2, shortly after that, Mary of Magdala is introduced, and she got confabulated with the prostitute. And it was, I think it was Pope, Pope Gregory the Great who, uh, who, who did it in a homily. And gosh, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Mary of Magdala was considered to be a prostitute who was a repentant sinner. Hadn't, didn't you hear that growing up? There's just absolutely no truth to it. There's no more evidence that you're a prostitute than there was that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Just not true. She's going to have a great um, uh, slander lawyer in the kingdom of God, you know, to take care of all these folks that trashed her name there. There are cathedrals all over Europe and basilicas all over Europe dedicated to the repentant woman named the Magdalene. What was true of Mary Magdalene is this, that Jesus expelled seven demons from her. And that's, that's essentially important for understanding who she was and why she was with Jesus. By the way, seven is that perfect number in Jewish tradition. So when it says seven demons, that means this woman was really in the grips of either a serious mental illness, some kind of uh, uh, state of paranoid schizophrenia, or epilepsy, or some other kind of neurocognitive problem. Uh, everything that was not visible uh, would be considered demonic possession. Uh, diabetes would have been considered demonic possession. Seven means she's in big trouble. She's at the maximum of what it means to be in the grips of evil here. And for folks of that circumstance, just like the lepers, they were excluded from the community. They couldn't go to synagogue. They couldn't be with their families. They were not allowed at the village water. Uh, stuff was left on the edge of the villages by compassionate villagers for those folks. They were cut off from their religion, from their family, from anything that was of value. They were in the desert. They were among the tombs. When the gospel says that Jesus expelled seven demons from her, 
Jesus healed her. He literally gave her her life back. She could resume relationships. She could be in society again. She could go in public. She could come to the synagogue. Wouldn't you be grateful? Wouldn't you think that this man who did not treat her as the despised, marginalized woman who had no relationships and who treated her with dignity and gave her her life back, wouldn't you think this is a guy I need to spend time with? And it's clear that she did. She was a prominent member of the group of disciples that traveled with Jesus. And when you think about the rules that I talked to you earlier about, wow, what were people saying about these women traveling with Jesus and his disciples? Where was their permission? How dare they? Didn't seem to bother Jesus in the least. And, and most importantly in that, in that whole world, Jesus reiterated their right to learn of the great God who loves them. You know that little story in Bethany of the two sisters, Martha and Mary? Martha uh, having a bee in her bonnet because she's doing all the household tasks and Mary's at the feet of Jesus, telling my sister to help me. You know, when Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things, one thing is essential. Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. What Jesus is saying is, She's got a right to learn about the kingdom of God. She's got a right to be a disciple. She's got a right to take her place in the beloved company of God's people. We know that Mary of Magdala followed Jesus to the end. By the way, she's uh, uh, alone among the women who were always named in conjunction with a man but Mary of Magdala was not. In, in whatever way, she belonged to Jesus. Jesus was the one for her who helped her make the most sense out of her life. And she remained a faithful and loyal disciple of Jesus right to the city. It would have been relatively easy to follow Jesus in the Galilee, especially if you were unemployed. You had a chance you would get fed in the crowd and you would hear wonderful, wonderful, burden-lifting things about the kingdom of God that was just about to break into your life. But to follow Jesus in the city took great risk and took great faith. To follow Jesus in the city to Calvary took enormous courage. We don't know of any of his disciples male disciples who did that. We're not really sure who the disciple whom Jesus loved was. But the three Marys were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And Mary of Magdala were at the foot of the cross. And what that meant under the Roman law is that they were subject to the same punishment of this prisoner they were standing in support of. Yeah, Wow was right, absolutely right. Those women were at risk of being crucified themselves. And you think about that. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, women, you know, they, the Romans probably wouldn't have done that, you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong about that. The Romans did crucify women. In fact, they crucified children. These were, these were not benevolent occupiers of the land. They brooked no, no contradiction. So those women standing at the foot of the cross were loving Jesus in an incredibly profound and risky way. Next Good Friday, you know, it'll change the way you, 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 you sing that song, huh? Stabat Mater. I, you know, what's ironic to me about Mary of Magdala is this. There are many things ironic about her, but, you know, when you look at the history that we just quickly looked at about being considered a prostitute, 
for all those years, all those centuries. And yet, in the early church, in the writings of the fathers of the church, and in some of the extra-biblical stuff like the Gnostic Gospels and other places, she has another title. And the title is Apostola Apostolorum. Apostola Apostolorum. She's the apostle to the apostles. And the reason for that is that in John's Gospel, chapter 20, Mary of Magdala is the first to experience the risen Christ. And you remember that she was, and maybe, you remember she was so desperate, you know, she wanted to hold him. And, and he said, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to, to the Father. You know, I, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe without Jesus, she was so afraid of falling back into that, that darkness, that possession that he had freed her from before. Who knows? But clearly she loved him. Clearly she was moved by his death and devastated by that. And she experiences the risen Christ who says her name. And she responds, Robunai, teacher. And then what does he do? Go and tell my brothers. I go before them into Galilee. The risen Christ in John's gospel sends Mary of Magdala to the apostles. The word ho apostolos in Greek means messenger. One who is sent. An apostle is one who is sent. Jesus sends Mary of Magdalene as an apostle to the apostles. And what's overwhelmingly astounding about that is in the Jewish law, a woman couldn't be a legal witness. Only two men could be witnesses that, bear, that bore veracity in any kind of public proceeding. And the whole of Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of Christ. Paul himself says it. If Christ is not risen, we are but the most hopeless of fools. The resurrection is it. That's the deal breaker. And in the whole of this Christian tradition presented by John's gospel, the first witness to the experience of the risen Christ is Mary of Magdala. Apostola Apostolorum. She's the apostle of the apostles. You know what's interesting? The Eastern Catholic Church never, ever fell for any of that business about her being a repentant woman or her being a prostitute. They have uh, emulated her as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and an eminent witness of the Lord right back to their beginnings. Even into the second and third centuries, you know, people were still talking about Mary of Magdalene as a credible source for who Jesus was, what he said, and what he taught. Well, Jesus never defined the reign of God, as we said when we began this evening. He described it. He used metaphors and images. He used visual images and he used stories. And he talked about the experience of a relationship with God. But when you listen to the teaching of Jesus, you can walk away from that and identify the kingdom of God. And you can identify it the way that Jesus described it, by what happens, by behaviors. There are actions that are actions of the kingdom of God, and there are actions that are actions of the kingdom of the night. Listen to this, and you could generate your own list. These are the behaviors of the kingdom of God. If someone has the lenses of the reign of God, these are the things that happen in that woman's life or that man's life or that child's life. Mercy, love, forgiveness, generosity, service, food, shelter, clothing, visiting, comforting, justice, inclusivity, welcome, hospitality, 
unselfish heart, love of enemies, reverence of persons, trusting in God, serving the last, prayer without ceasing, washing the feet. You know, a wonderful long-time friend of mine, brilliant scholar, a couple of years ago, I went to visit him. He'd lived in Rome for 35 years, but he was living in Quebec City. One of his confreres was a, a Quebecois peasant who became a priest. You know, just a gentle, simple soul who worked hard, served God's people the best he could. And he had an advanced stage of Alzheimer's such that he couldn't find his room in the house, <clears throat> couldn't dress himself. He would sit uh, in the sunlight and just page after page of looking at magazine pictures. That's what he would do of a day. And my friend, Father Gaston, told me one time, I said, how, how do you protect Father Bertrand? And he said, well, he said he's very good, really. He said, uh, I get him up in the morning and I clean him, I wash him, I dress him, I have him walk with me to the chapel, and he sits there while we say Mass, not cognizant of what's happening. He says, then I feed him, and I sit him in the sun and give him a stack of magazines. It's the same stack every day. And I said, wow, I said, that's really something. You know, he heard me saying because he's publishing a book a year, this guy, you know, and he heard me saying, gosh, that's really biting into your work time. He put his hand up like that, and he said, Ray, he said, I wash the feet of Jesus Christ every morning. <laughs> Profound. <laughs> Profound. It's the truth, isn't it? You know, and you think about, you know, the wiping of kids' noses and, the, you know, helping of children and the protecting of folks and the the great work that's done, you know, in our health care and the visiting of the sick, uh, that's all the washing of the feet. And as Jesus impressed on his earliest followers that if they would be disciples of him, they also have to have their feet washed. You know, the great question of uh, Basil the Great when a young monk would want to become a hermit, uh, Basil would ask them, who will wash your feet if you're a hermit? Who will wash your feet? That you have to have the humility to receive ministry from others as well. That's of the kingdom. What are the behaviors of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the night? Hatred, murder, oppression, injustice, hoarding, selfishness, abuse of power, Lying, deceiving, manipulation, theft, blasphemy, being a taker, treating people as objects, especially sexually. That's why pornography is pure evil. It reduces people to be objects of sexual gratification. That's what Jesus said about lusting. Reduces people to be objects. Hard-heartedness. Bitterness. Those are the behaviors of the kingdom of the night. And it really, it really is, on the one hand, so profound, so astounding, the reign of God that Jesus proclaimed. And on the other hand, it's really rather easy to identify, isn't it? It's a question I've learned over the years to keep very, very close to my own consciousness. Is this of the kingdom or not? Is this of the kingdom or not? Does this deserve my energy? Does this deserve my thoughts? Does this deserve my speech or not? The reign of God. It's... Uh, the more we do what Jesus told us to do, make your home in my word, 
The more we do that, it seems to me, the kingdom of God, the basileia tuthayu, the reign of God that Jesus proclaimed is as compelling as it was to those who first heard him proclaim it. When we gather around the table of the Lord and the lectionary and we hear the word of God proclaimed in our midst, that's the kingdom of God being proclaimed to us in a very fresh way. And it's not the same as when you and I might read the scriptures by ourselves or when you and I might look over the Sunday readings or we're in a prayer group. When you hear them on Saturday night or Sunday, uh, when you hear them proclaimed from that ambo, that's the living word of God coming into your heart and coming into your ears. That's why I've, I've told Father Eric many times, boy, the ministries in this parish are astounding and the preparation of those ministries is astounding. All of the lectors are excellent. All of them are prepared. You know, all of them are, are geared toward the task that they have. And our deacons, our priests, you're so blessed in this parish because the ministry of the word is a living ministry here. Look how many ministries are devoted to opening up the word of God for God's people in this parish. The people on your staff who are so skilled and so committed to it. What I'm saying quite simply is this, that the reign of God is not an historical artifact. It's as compelling for us, as fresh for us, as when Jesus first proclaimed it. Because the risen Christ lives among us and lives within us. Thank you so much. I, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you.